please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Let's hear God's word beginning in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, those many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your parable and for your teaching. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bless it to our hearts as we observe and learn from it this morning, that you would be honored and your people strengthened for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So next next week is, uh, we're having a baptism next week, Talitha Frame. And my oldest son, Jacob Folia, will be baptized. And we have a chance as a church um, to rejoice with them and to rejoice with their families at the salvation that has come uh, to them. 
And we do that, um, that celebration in one sense um, through baptism because of what it communicates and what it pictures and what it displays. Um, if you think about the ordinance of baptism given to us by our Lord, it's, it's one of two ordinances. He, he gave us the Lord's table in which we come and we sit at the Lord's table and re we remember uh, his broken body on our behalf and we remember his shed blood on our behalf and we, we celebrate in that communion what Christ has done for us and we, we look forward to his coming and we remember his promises and it's right for us to celebrate that. And, and I would also add, not to take it lightly, I lived in Chicago for a while and I remember going to a church that had set up the communion table and I'd never been there, and it was the first Sunday. And after the service, uh, the communion service, the guy who was leading it, he had his coffee cup in his hand. Um, everyone just kind of walked at their, at their own pace. There was no order to it. And they came, and he took the drink, the juice, and he popped, like literally like popped the, the bread in his mouth. And he took his coffee cup, and he swigged it down, and he went over to the piano and he put his coffee cup on the piano and he just started, he started playing and everyone just kind of wandered off and it's just, it was a very, I remember being a, just a very um, demeaning act. It, it reminded me of the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth where he goes, you guys are being drunk and eating and there's no order and there's no, there's no levity to this at all, what Christ did for you. And... Um, and, and so he rebuked them. And so I thought about our baptism that is coming up here, and, and I was rejoicing in it because that what that ordinance pictures, and we should rejoice in it and remember it as well. Because the ordinance of baptism is a, is a, is a rite of washing or cleansing. It's a, it's a symbol of burial of the old self risen to the new self in Christ, given to us by our Lord, in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and it's an outward sign, and it's a seal that points to the inward spiritual reality of the one converted. The inward spiritual reality being that we have been washed of all our sins and counted righteous in God's sight only through faith in Jesus Christ, right? That's what baptism is, that inward spiritual reality, what it pictures as a sign and a seal, that inward spiritual reality, we've been washed of all our sins and counted righteous in God's sight through faith in Jesus Christ. And it also marks out us as belonging to the Lord as a new covenant member of his body. Is that significant? It's significant. Is that a reason for rejoicing? You bet it's a reason for rejoicing uh, because this individual, these individuals who are being baptized, even in the New Testament, they are testifying to something through their baptism, and it's mainly not the testimony of their faith, but it's the testimony of what God has done in them. And so when we're baptized, it's a sign and a seal that pictures the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a reason for rejoicing, right? That's a reason for us as a church to remember 
what Christ has done, but also for us to remember what Christ has done for us. It's not just for those being baptized, but what has Christ done for us? We need to remember that. We remember in the communion, and we are to remember through the baptism, and we're to rejoice in that. And so there were two passages that really came to my mind as I was thinking. One is Luke 15, which we just read, the prodigal son, and we're going to look at that uh, this morning. The other, uh, I think next week, that we'll look at uh, is Luke 19, 1 to 10. But what, what really drew my heart to these passages is that we're reminded that salvation is the work of God which Jesus Christ came to fulfill. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost by bringing about this inward spiritual change in sinners. That's where we receive our regeneration, our justification, our forgiveness, our sanctification, our coming glorification, and and we're united with Christ because of Christ, who is the Savior, who came to seek and to save the lost. In other words, every baptism is a confirmation that everything Jesus accomplished on the cross is ours by faith in him. And that reason, it's a reason to be celebrated. And so in Luke 15, why this is so applicable is if you want to just turn over to Luke 14. I'm just going to give you the context. I'm not going to read it, but you can glance at it as I give you the context here. In chapter 14, begins with Jesus being invited to a dinner party. Okay? He's being invited to a dinner party at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees who were basically watching Jesus carefully because Jesus was already being considered a troublemaker by them. And so in the course of their dinner party in verses 15 to 24, Jesus launches into a parable about a banquet. It's a picture of God's invitation to the great banquet of Christianity. In verse 16, a certain man was giving a big dinner, he invited many, but one by one, they refused to come. One had a field that he had to go to see, another had to check out five yoke of oxen, another had just married a wife and he couldn't come, and so it's not evil things, it's just ordinary life, and it kept people from coming to this great banquet from the kingdom. And people who just live as if the world is their main world carried on. And so the host of the dinner in the parable said to his servant there in verse 21, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Now you notice this list of people in verse 21, it's exactly the same list in verse 13 where Jesus told them, not in parable, that when they gave a dinner, they should invite the outcasts and the poor. And so now he's telling them with a parable that this is what God does. God's heart is spread out toward the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And verse 23, the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. 
And so this is what Jesus has been doing and what he continues to do as he leaves the dinner party. He's calling the outcasts and the sinners. He's compelling them to come in to the great banquet and to fill the house of God. And so in verses 25 to 33, great crowds accompanied him, and Jesus gave a radical call to follow him. And chapter 14 ends in verse 35 with Jesus saying, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And so then that's where we picked up in verse 15.1. Luke says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So Jesus is doing what he came to do. He's having success, but not everyone was happy about that because notice, Luke says, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. For the Pharisees and the scribes, for the self-righteous, this was scandalous. This is part of what they could not understand about Jesus. This unheard of rabbi has such a following that tax gatherers and sinners are coming to follow him. But we are the righteous leaders of the Jewish people. We are the holy ones of Israel, and they're going out and following this Jesus, and that bothered them to no end. Tax gatherers, in their mind, pious Jews, saw them as unpatriotic, dishonest, and greedy. They were considered unclean before God and alienated from him. And so they despised these tax gatherers, and yet these tax gatherers were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Sinners, this group coming near to him that the Pharisees and the scribes call sinners, these are a class of persons that they saw who were marked by manifestly immoral and unclean lives They didn't follow the Pharisees. They didn't follow the scribes. They're not walking in God's ways. They're not following God's laws. These are unprincipled, unclean people, less than Jews. No respectable Jew would have anything to do with sinners, and yet Jesus is receiving them. Now, when he says Jesus is receiving them, here in verse 2, That word is used six other times in Acts. It's used in in Luke, rather. It's used in Luke 2.25 when Simeon, it is said, was eagerly awaiting the consolation of Israel. It's used in Luke 2.38 when Anna the prophetess spoke in the temple to those who were eagerly awaiting the redemption of Israel. And in Luke 2.36, Jesus says, Be like men who are eagerly awaiting the return of the master from the wedding feast, and so on. In other words, when this is used of Jesus here by Luke, he's he's saying Jesus is not passively receiving sinners. He is actively looking for them, and he's eagerly awaiting their coming. Jesus has an eye out for sinners, for the prostitutes, for the, for the reckless, for the sinner, for the maimed, for the lame, for those who are lowly in life and those who have nothing in life. 
that they want to hold on to, to think that somehow that will bring themselves glory. He's not coming for the righteous. He's coming for the sinner. He's coming for the one who has no righteousness, and he's awaiting their coming. His eye is out toward them, and he's seeking sinners and tax gatherers to come to him and to eat with him. This is what Jesus came to do. This is the will of the Father, bringing sinners into the heavenly joy of the Father, and he's showing them the love and compassion of the Father by filling the Father's house with repentant sinners, the prostitutes, the maimed, the diseased, the social and religious outcasts, and he was preparing them for a heavenly banquet. And so Luke 15 is Jesus' response to the grumbling accusations of the Pharisees and scribes. And what he wants them to see, and, and what I want us to see, to draw to your attention, because there's a lot that could be said about this parable. But I want, through this parable, as Jesus preaches it to them, he wants them to see this salvation that Jesus accomplishes is a matter of great joy. Salvation is a matter of great joy. Not just the joy of childbirth, which is a great joy, isn't it? It's not just like the joy of buying and owning your first house or getting your first job. It's not like the joy that might come to some if their favorite sports team wins their title or their soccer team wins the national championship. It's not that kind of joy because that kind of joy is fleeting. That kind of joy dissipates and disappears eventually because your child eventually moves out of the house. Your child eventually grows up. Your sports team eventually loses. Your job is eventually retired from. All of these things in the world, these joys are temporary and they aren't lasting. But the joy of salvation that Jesus Christ accomplishes on the cross for sinners is eternal. It doesn't end. It never stops. It's forever. And it is something that we, as believers, when we behold the salvation of a sinner it should cause us to rejoice and never to be flippant or passive about it. Never. Every time someone comes to faith in Christ, you are seeing someone risen from the dead. And if that doesn't bring you joy, nothing else will. And this is what Jesus came for. So he, he, he tells them this in three parables. We're only going to look at the prodigal son but his main point is that when the lost are found, heaven rejoices. When the lost are found, heaven rejoices. Just, just look at it. There's a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. All three of them, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, they all represent, in the parables, lost sinners. Being found represents their repentance, and the celebration is what God and all the angels are doing in heaven. And so you'll notice all three parables, the conclusion is the same. With the lost sheep, verse 6, 
He says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Verse 9, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Verse 24, this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. A lost and found sheep, heaven rejoices. A lost and found coin, heaven rejoices. A lost and found son, heaven rejoices. Rejoice with me, God says. Rejoice that lost sinners are being found by God. That is good news. And I want you to note that these lost sinners are not found because they repent and come looking for God. They repent because they belonged to God. So they were his already, and for a while they were lost in their sin, and God went out to receive his lost sheep to find his lost coin to receive his lost son, not passively, but to receive them and bring them in and bring them home. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, my coin, my son. So their repentance doesn't make them the sheep. It doesn't make them the coin. It doesn't make them the son. Their repentance is given to them by God so that he might receive them home. So, that's good news. Now, when we look at this parable of the prodigal son, real briefly here, let me... Let me tell you that this is a reason why it is such a good news. And, and the first thing I want to draw out is what Jesus highlights in this parable. Okay? And what he highlights in this parable, I think, first, is the lost condition of the son. So if we're going to rejoice in salvation, we're going to rejoice because we understand what it is we've been saved from. And so when you look at the lost condition, as Jesus lays it out here about this prodigal son, the first thing you notice is Jesus basically in the parable says how running away from God, if you want to summarize it, starts by feeling free and it ends in utter misery, either in this life or in the one to come or both. You look at verse 13. After the father gives to the younger son his portion of the inheritance early, Jesus says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And the word reckless means loose or wild or in an abandoned manner. So this always feels free for a season. For Adam and Eve in the garden, it felt free to be reckless and disobey God's word. It felt good to them. 
to eat of the tree that God had said, do not eat of or you shall surely die. And that sense of feeling free and feeling like they're on top of the world and feeling like they're God and feeling like they can make their own decisions, it felt good and it felt free. And so they ate of the tree that God commanded them not to eat. And what came about was like, was misery and death. I think of it in terms of how one person put it, he said, it's like skydiving. You go out into the sky in this plane, and you jump out of this plane, and you feel free. And you're flying out of the plane, and you're headed toward the ground at however many miles an hour, and you feel free until the parachute doesn't open. And it ends in misery. That's what sin is like. That's what being lost is like. It's thinking that you're free, only it ends in misery. Look at verse 13 again. After the father gives to the younger son his portion of the inheritance, Jesus says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. He took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. You see, at the end of the day, you may say, like the world says, this is my life. I can be true to myself. I can live an authentic me. Haven't you heard all of that? You hear it a lot today. The problem is that your search for authenticity, your search for satisfaction, your search for happiness in yourself or in other things, the point is it will eventually run dry. It always does. It always runs dry. Reckless living. Our world is reckless. And it's reckless with the graces that God gives us. Just like this prodigal son was reckless. And what do I mean by that? I mean this. And, and, and this is all because this is how the prodigal son thought. He lived recklessly. And how does our world do that? Our world is reckless with the graces of God. It's reckless with God's justice, isn't it? Our, our country's a mess when it comes to justice. It's because our country is living recklessly according to God's law. Our country is recklessly living with the ordained and, 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 and committed institution of marriage. It's reckless with it. It doesn't believe it. It wants to turn it on its head. Our country is reckless with the sanctity of human life. Life is not valued the way that God intends for it to be valued. And our society is reckless with it. It just, it just dismisses it constantly. And our society is reckless with gender. It's reckless with how God created man and woman to be man and woman. Biologically made in the image of God. And our world is reckless with that truth. 
It wants to throw it away, and it wants to turn it around. And our world is reckless with sex. The way that God ordains sexual relations between a man and a woman within the unity of marriage, our world is reckless with it. Pornography all over the place. On the internet, on TV, on magazines, on street corners, anywhere you could go. There's sexual perversions everywhere. Reckless. It's reckless living. This is how the world behaves. This is how the lost live. This is not how Christians are to live. This is how sinners behave because that's their condition. And they live recklessly before God. Sinners in a lost condition, that's the world we live in. Is there any wonder why when these people follow through with their gender dysphoria and they recklessly mutilate their bodies and they recklessly change their biology, and parents recklessly encourage their children to do it, that many of them regret it later and want to change back. In fact, some say at least 20%, 41% attempt suicide, 60 to 90% of them among the transgendered population have mental illnesses. The media doesn't tell you that, do they? You don't see that on the news. You don't see it on the news because Satan promotes recklessness. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. That's what happens when you recklessly break your attachment with God. You will end up attached to another and that attachment is, not, is going to be slavery, not sonship. It may be drugs or alcohol or illicit sex or pornography, or maybe your job, your spouse, a sport, a hobby, television, a late cabin, a computer, books, I don't know. But when you break your attachment with God, you will end up attaching to something else. And in the end, that attachment which God did not create you for will lead you to swine troughs and you will eat with the pigs and you will do that maybe in this life most certainly you will do that when you die because God will judge you and so you and I were made to be filled with God and if we run from him and we take our little earthly inheritance of time and money and energy and we use it to attach ourselves to other things than God, it won't matter whether we are worth a billion dollars. Does it really matter to you if you are buried in an upscale cemetery? Right? Who cares? Who cares if you have a Rolls Royce? 
and a big mansion. Who cares? It doesn't matter. It's pathetic. It's empty. It's going to burn. And so if you have a billion dollars in the bank and you don't have Christ, you're lost. And you have no hope. And that's the misery Jesus describes when we run from the Father's house. This is the nature of our lost condition. And those who are in this condition, here's the thing, those who are in this condition, which is all of us were, if they belong to God, if they are his sheep, his coin, his son, eventually they realize the hopelessness of their condition. Many, many don't see it until it's too late. But if you belong to God, and he is your God, and he has elected you, every single child of God who is living recklessly one day must come to the realization that this is my hopeless condition. And then they turn to God. Jesus says in verse 17, but when he came to himself, that is, he came to his senses. I always think about the demon-possessed man in the tombs in the country of the Gerasenes in Mark 5. I love that. I love that story. When Jesus is crossing the lake and the storm comes, remember? And, and he calms the storm and he speaks peace to the sea. And he gets to the other side and there's this crazy guy on the other side in the tombs. And he's cutting himself and he's breaking out of chains and he's a wild man and everyone knows it and he's living in the tombs. And then Jesus came into him and he cast out the demons. He healed him. And when the city came back and they saw the man, Mark says, they found the man clothed and in his right mind. That's what happened to the prodigal son. He came to his mind and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. So the son realizes he's guilty, he's alienated from God, from his home, he knew that his identity was not in the things of this world. His identity was as a son, but he humbly goes to his father. That's what conversion is and true repentance. That's what it looks like. It's discovering that you came, that where you came from and who you are and why you exist, and you wake up to this truth and you turn to God with a humble heart lest you perish and so the son goes to his father, and notice he doesn't expect to be treated as a son, but at least as a servant in his mind. 
That, that's his humility before. He, he knows he's undeserving. He sees the incredible bounty. He sees the generosity of his father that he foolishly traded for the pleasures of this world. That's what all sinners do. That's what we've done. Uh, apart from Christ, we've looked at the world and we say, like Adam and Eve, I want that and that and that and I want that and I want that. I don't want God. I don't want him to get in the way. I want all the things of this world. And I'd rather have all of that than have God. That's what, that's what it does. And that's what you repent of. That's what you repent of. You say, God, I am sorry. Forgive me, Father, for I have foolishly traded your glory and your fame and your majesty and your beauty and your love and your law and your kindness. And, and, and I've traded all of that that you have done by creating me and forming me in your image. And I have foolishly pursued all of the things of the world that you made and loved them and not you. That's what the son is saying. And so he comes and he repents. He comes and he repents because he belonged to God. That's what it is. And discovering where you were and who God is. And so the son goes. That this sinner turned from such a helpless and lost estate is a reason and a cause for joy, isn't it? And that brings us to the beautiful scene in verse 20b to verse 24. When you see a miraculous transformation like that, that's, that's one thing. But now you get to see the joy the joy of God the Father, who our God is, and how loving he is. He, he's not distant. He's not detached. He's not indifferent. He's not cold toward his creation. He cares and loves. And so when you come home to God through Jesus Christ, I'll ask you, what did you find? What did you find? What did you find when you came to God for the forgiveness of your sins? And are you enjoying it? Because when the son came home, here's what he found. Verse 20. The father said, the son got up, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. You see, God is not so busy that he has no concern for his wayward children. God sees you before anyone else sees. And he's not mad and angry. He's not waiting for his son to grovel at his feet so that his son can earn his repentance or favor by being sad and downcast enough. That's not, not what he's waiting for. He's not waiting for his son to say, well, now you've sinned against me. Now show me how sorry you are before I accept you. That's not what God does. God actually, before you even come to repentance, true repentance and faith, he already sees you. 
And in that process, as he's changed your heart, he actually goes like Jesus to receive you with compassion and with love. And he takes him back. You know what? We wait for people to grovel before we give repentance, right? Before we give forgiveness. That's what we do. We wait. Come back groveling. Then I'll forgive you. Make it worthwhile. Show me how sad you are. Show me how guilty you feel, and then I'll give you forgiveness. That's what we do. That's not what God does. God comes, and he sees him, and he says, Jesus is telling us this about God, that he felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Jesus wants you to know God like that. Jesus wants you to know God is like that. That he comes to the sinner and he has compassion and he runs and he embraces and he kisses. That's the way it is with God when you head home. He doesn't look to chide you and to tell you how wrong you were. He doesn't want to remind you over and over again of how you've spurned his love. He doesn't want to remind you how you squandered the life that he gave you and you lived in disobedience and rebellion. He doesn't want to be your accuser. You know who wants to be your accuser? Satan wants to be your accuser. God doesn't treat his children like that. He forgives and he says, as he embraces him and he welcomes him home, my son is home from sin. My son is home from reckless living. My son is home from rebellion. My son is home from unbelief. And he brings you into his home with open arms and he receives you as the son that you are. And he restores you to the place that you were intended to have in his home. This is how Jesus wants us to think about God. And it is joyous news that God is like this towards sinners. And so the son makes his confession. And the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. He welcomes his son home. He gives him the best robe, the best uh, robe of sonship, not slavery, a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, fully restored. And he says, bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Celebrate at what God has done in saving a reckless sinner. Now Jesus does make a point to the Pharisees and the scribes at the end of the parable. But that's not the point we're going to make today. This is a joyous occasion when lost sinners are found. This is what Jesus came to do to save sinners and tax collectors. 
and to bring them into God's kingdom. And it's a remarkable work. And you know how Jesus did it? He did it through suffering in our place on a cross. This whole time as he's telling them to rejoice in what he came to do, they don't even realize yet that what he came to do is to go to a cross and die so that this prodigal son might come home. That's what the gospel is about. Lost sinners, reckless living, a loving savior, and the will of God in heaven to send his son into the world to take on flesh so that he might take the sin of all of our reckless living and what we deserved because of it and pay the price of God's wrath in our place. And then he takes his non-reckless life, his good works, his righteousness, his holiness, his purity, and he gives it to the one who has placed their faith in him. And then he raises them from the dead to a new life. All of it is in him, and that's what baptism pictures is the point, right? That's what baptism pictures. And we should rejoice, beloved. If you have not been baptized and you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you need to be baptized. You need to be baptized because this is what God has called us to do, that we might glory in his name and put him on display. And if you are here and you have been baptized, when you witness a baptism, you ought to remember, you ought to remember where you were and what God has done to wash you. Should that lift our hearts in rejoicing? Amen, it should. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your powerful word, for the truth that is contained in it. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us the story of this prodigal son because it reminds us so much of where we were apart from you. It reminds us of how you have loved us in our sin, as Paul says in Romans, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It reminds us of how lost we were and how much we were clinging to the things of this world and how much satisfaction we wanted from it. And it reminds us of your love and your grace, that you have come to us and you have embraced us, not because of our own works of righteousness, but because of your love. And you have forgiven us of our sin and you have washed us. And you have made us clean and you have risen us to a new life. And we rejoice in that. And we give you thanks for that. And we pray, O oh God, that if there is any here who have not yet come to faith in Christ, that you would draw them this morning. That there, if there are prodigals that are running about and living recklessly in this world, that you would open their eyes now to the truth of your word, and as they belong to you, that you would draw them today to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Oh God, may they hear the proclamation of your word. May they hear your voice. And may you receive them eagerly as we know you will. Father, we thank you and we give you the praise in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.